Hey everybody, Daniel here. Before we start into our dissection of Annihilation, y'all probably deserve a content warning, trigger warning, whichever nomenclature you prefer. Between the movie's content and themes, as well as our personal reflections, we discuss some potentially upsetting stuff, like depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicidal ideation. It's an illuminating and ultimately positive conversation, but I just want to make sure it doesn't catch you off guard. Hope you enjoy the show. Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Outside of a Dream, a podcast for the best in new horror cinema, video, and short fiction. I'm Daniel Link. And I'm Cameron Suey. And... Boy, oh boy, are we jazzed to talk about this movie tonight. Uh, yeah, so this movie came out roughly a month ago, and Cam and I are part of a Slack group full of horror nerds, and since the movie came out, we've all been gushing about it, swapping theories, like pointing out details to one another, and so now the two of us finally get to sit down and talk about Annihilation, which is written and directed by Alex Garland. It's uh, adapted from the book by Jeff Vandermeer. The book itself is the first in a trilogy, which Vandermeer calls the Southern Reach or Area X trilogy, but Garland started adapting it when it was the only book available in the series, and he treated it as a standalone work. So we're going to keep a lot of the book talk until the end of this episode. We're just mostly talk about what he intended to be a purely standalone work in the form of this movie. So this is the second movie uh, second feature directed by Alex Garland, the first being Ex Machina, which came out a couple years ago. Did you see that, Cam? I, I have shamefully not seen Ex Machina, and I know that that's uh, bordering on a crime at this point. <laughs> so Garland has had a good career as a sci-fi creator. While this is only his second uh, movie he's directed, officially that is, I'll get to that in a second, uh, he wrote the script for Sunshine, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, he also wrote the script for 28 Days Later, which basically reinvented the zombie genre for the modern era. Uh, he also did the script for Dread, the Judge Dread movie with Carl Bond, though Carl Bond said recently that, oh yeah, Garland basically unofficially directed that. So a funny little note about that. God, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. I, I feel like everything I learned about him, I can't conceive of the same person, the same Alex Garland being... Uh, yeah, from yeah like, through 21st century cinema. It's just, he's got an amazing career. Yeah. Garland's work has always straddled the line between sci-fi and horror to some degree. Obviously, 28 Days Later, very much horror. Sunshine is a relatively hard sci-fi flick for the first two thirds until it famously or perhaps infamously turns into what is basically a slasher movie in its final act. Yeah, it's basically a brutal collision of those two genres. And you have Ex Machina, which... You haven't seen it, so I'm not going to say much, but there is a gradual but noticeable shift from sci-fi into horror throughout that movie. And this perfectly straddles the line between sci-fi and horror in combining ecological sci-fi with body horror and cosmic horror as well. So let's get into summing this up. And I will say, if you have read Annihilation, the book, you haven't seen the movie, but you are planning to. Right off the bat, this movie is very different from the source material. So yeah, everything that I'm not going to go into further details at this moment, but basically everything I'm about to say will count as a spoiler, even if you've read the novel. So just be wary of that. So we start off in an interrogation room 
And the main character, Lena, played by Natalie Portman, uh, is being questioned by scientists. Uh, Lena is a biologist, a professor at Johns Hopkins University, and as we learn, a former soldier as well. And she is what we learn uh, in this opening dialogue, the sole returning member of an expedition she was on. And we come back to this interrogation throughout the movie in just little bits as a kind of framing device of her recounting these events to the scientist uh, who's, okay, I'm risking this. I'm starting this off on a tangent, but this is like, (laughs) no, sorry. This is a theory of mine. And that is uh, the, the scientist who's questioning her, Lomax, is played by Benedict Wong, an English actor. And Benedict Wong has like consistently shown up in some of the best sci-fi movies of the last decade or so. So he was a navigator Trey in Sunshine. He has a very small part in Moon. Uh, he's one of the ship's pilots in Prometheus. He's the head of JPL in The Martian. Uh, basically, at this point, not only is Benedict Wong like a really good actor, he's like a kind of walking seal of quality for good sci-fi nowadays. Oh, and he's got a, a, a cozy ride throughout the Avengers for the next couple of years, at least. Yeah, as, well. as Wong. And, oh, he's also, he voices one of the main characters in the video game Prey. So that had me on board. So yeah, basically, as soon as I saw Benedict Wong in the trailer, I'm like, I'm in good hands. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but this interrogation kind of starts the movie off on risky territory because it's flat out saying, Lena is the only survivor of these events. We know conclusively that two of her fellow team members are dead and that two suffered unknown or at least indescribable fates, which is a risky move because in horror, typically the tension is caused by wondering if a character is going to die, where they're telling you straight up front, no, these characters die or suffer like really bad fates. You're right. It is It is extremely risky to sort of to lose that tension right away. But I think you know, when we talk about spoilers for this movie, in a lot of ways, you can describe the entire plot to someone and that's not going to deeply affect or ruin their viewing experience. No. It's not so much the details of it, um, because those are also you know played with in interesting ways. Um, one of the things that I love about that framing device is that it, you are hearing this entirely from Lena's point of view, and you, it takes you a long time to realize that that might not be a reliable narrator. Yes. Um, and I think that's that to me is is the sort of the the, the grace of that that framing device. Mm-hmm. And also, it kind of turns the question of if the shoe is going to drop to when the shoe is going to drop for these characters. And there's a different kind of dread in that. Like I saw Seven for the first time as a teenager, knowing full well about the thing in the box ending. But even knowing what was going to happen to that certain character, I still felt sick to my stomach watching it. So sometimes there is the dread of knowing of that dramatic dramatic irony. Right. You ha- you're, what you're waiting for is the how, uh, and that becomes the tension. Mm-hmm. So Lena starts recounting these events. And to this purely visual, closest thing we have to a title sequence, we see a comet or some falling object of a type speeding towards Earth and impacting into the side of the lighthouse on the coast of Florida. Which is also another sort of fascinating uh, undermining of the mythos. And from the, or the, from the very beginning, we see that whatever the source of the strangeness is, is absolutely uh, an alien object. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it is quite, quite vividly shown to you in the, in the opening sequence. And we cut to 
a microscopic video of cells dividing. And it's Lena teaching one of her courses at Johns Hopkins, uh, talking about cancer cells. Specifically, they're looking at cervical cancer cells. And we learn that she has been living alone for the past year or so since her husband, Cain, has gone MIA, presumed dead. You know, we understand that she is still in the mode of kind of combination grieving and denial over his fate. And yeah, she's kind of living this solitary life, crying, painting, listening to uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And that's what she's doing when suddenly Kane arrives home. And Kane is played by Oscar Isaac, who is, I'll just be on the record of saying, like, actually my favorite actor ever. No, yeah. And he's, he is a, he's another one of those sort of seal of quality actors, at least in the last, especially in the last five or six years or so. Um, and I think knowing the sort of range and energy that I am used to from him, what makes his appearance here so unnerving and spooky is that when he first walks through that door, he is, you know, hollowed out. There's something deeply wrong with him. And I think knowing and liking Oscar Isaac makes that that affect even more unsettling. Yeah, he's incredibly stoic and withdrawn, like to the point of complete emotional detachment. And it's very off-putting to Lena, you know, add on top of the fact that he can't recount anything about where he's been the last 12 months. And then he takes a sip of water and he starts bleeding from the mouth. We smash cut to the two of them on an ambulance being rushed to the hospital. Uh, Kane just vomiting up blood everywhere now. But they're pulled over by a bunch of black government cars. Kane is taken away. Lena is sedated. And she wakes up in a facility uh, on the coast of Florida where she's under the care of Dr. Ventress, who's played by Jennifer Jason Lee. She's a psychologist and the head of this facility known as the Southern Reach, which is overseeing a phenomenon in the area. Jennifer Jason Lee also turns in a, a similarly restrained performance that for an entirely different reason becomes uh, unnerving and unsettling. Um, but she's um, she has a, a, a sort of terrifying gravity from the first moment that we see her on screen. Yeah, she's not quite making eye contact with anybody. She's kind of really restrained in her manner of speaking, sort of like this. It's very frosty and, yeah, and withdrawn. It's neat. And she explains to Lena that Kane is in terrible physical condition. All of his organs are failing. He was part of the last expedition sent into this demilitarized zone, seems like the wrong word of it, this evacuated area they've called Area X. And Area X is affected by something they've termed the shimmer, which visually is like this soap bubble over yeah, the environment. Yeah, oil on the surface of water, but it also has these huge, like, Rorschach mirrored sections that seem, you know, fully impossible, which is a great way to start off this, the very visual part of this movie is that um, you start to see a lot of things that seem to be impossible. And moreover, for a movie that is, you know, nominally sci-fi, but very much horror, it is far and away the most colorful and vibrant horror movie I've ever seen. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost too beautiful to be frightening sometimes. Um, I, I don't think that ever works against itself, but it's, you know, there are, there are portions of the movie that I think back that were really unsettling, but at the time I was just too uh, entranced by how gorgeous it is. Yeah, it's, well, in a way, it's almost like you're 
like an insect being entranced by the coloration on some predatory plant in a way. It kind of lulls you into a false sense of awe or security. Right. It's never a safe beauty at any time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Lena learns from Ventress that the Shimmer, whatever this phenomena is, they don't know for sure. Uh, they can't fly drones or ain't take anything electronic into it or like go in by ship or air. No expedition they've sent has come in come back intact, save for the most recent one in which Kane is the only survivor. And he's dying and he's non-responsive at the moment, so they don't have any information about what's going on. But all that Ventress knows is that whatever this thing is, it is getting closer to us. Its uh, surface area is expanding. Yeah, at an increasing rate and to the point where they're about to abandon the facility that they've built at the edge of it. Lena begins contemplating, like, if she is to do right by Kane. And like she says that fairly on that she needs to do right by him. She needs to atone for something in some way. She needs to go in and see what's happening in the shimmer, figure out what's causing this. And maybe by stopping it, she can halt whatever is happening to Kane. I think one of the things that is so wonderful about this movie is despite its sort of dreamy um, tone and pace, it's a very quick moving movie. You know, the her deliberating on whether or not she's going to go is handled in a a very economical and very brief way with the very small amount that we know about that character that never feels like my sort of bugbear of having a character make decisions just to advance the plot. It feels natural for what we know about her, but it's at this point, the movie just starts to accelerate. Yeah. And at this point, we also meet the three other members of the expedition. They are Cash Shepard, played by Tuva Novotny, who's this very restrained and sisterly geomorphologist. We meet Anya Thornson, a paramedic who's this very bubbly, flirty, excitable queer woman. And we also meet uh, Josie Raddick, a physicist uh, played by Tessa Thompson, who's very introverted and quiet. And she learns that the three of them are going to set off into the shimmer with Ventress. And while concealing the fact that her husband was the only surviving member of the last group, she decides that she's going to go in with them. And so... They put on their hiking gear, are given some weapons, like they're all given an automatic rifle, and they venture into the Shimmer, at which point we cut to, like, I think what they say, three or four days later? Well, it's, it's, we watch them go in, and then we've, we've already structurally been seeing a lot of flashbacks of, um, of Lena's relationship yeah. uh, with Kane. So the moment they pass through, there's another flashback, and then we, we cut to Lena coming out of a tent, and you're not really certain whether the gap in time is just for the viewer or for the characters as well. And it, it what I think was was so unnerving about that sequence is that they 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 don't want to admit it to each other at first. That they realize they don't have any memories since passing the barrier to the shimmer, and that they to add to the sort of unnerving quality of that, they only know how far they've been gone because they've counted their food storage and they're down yeah four or five days of food. It's, it's such an understated and really unsettling moment. And so they start venturing further into Area X. Uh, they come across like this old boathouse where they're able to uncover a couple of canoes. And Lena encounters these vines, these flowering vines intertwined with the building and the wooden railing. But what's interesting about these vines is that along the same single branch, same branch, same vine, you have all these different types of flowers, which biologically should be impossible. She notes this. It's like it's constantly undergoing evolution or mutation along the same lifespan, which 
that's not how evolution works. And, and I think at that point, they, they make their first um, very mild um, comparison back to the cancer that Lena had, talks about in the very opening sequence, which becomes sort of a biological metaphor when they start talking about self-destruction later. Um, but that, that sort of wild, unchecked growth. Yeah, and cancer is super prevalent. Like everyone knows someone who suffered or died from cancer. But I don't think most people understand like what biologically cancer is as a disease. And what it is is unrestrained, unregulated uh, white blood cell division that takes over other organs and sucks them down. So that ties in heavily to what we see throughout the rest of this movie. At this point, Josie is grabbed by something and pulled into the water. Thankfully, the others are able to rescue her before she's drowned. But they encounter an alligator, a big, mottled, almost albino alligator that charges at them. Lena is able to shoot it to death. But upon closer inspection, she notices that the alligator's teeth are not only differently shaped, like more jagged, but they're arranged concentrically, like a shark's. So in a way, this alligator has somehow been crossbred with a shark. And I think there's a great running joke. It's a very dry joke, but <laughs> the idea of the impossible things of, you know, characters saying this, this can't be, this is impossible. Um, there's a lot of variations on that, um, that got very dry chuckles in the theater when I was there because yeah, they are continually confronted by uh, completely impossible things. Yes. They're able to recover from this life-threatening incident and they pile into the boats and they start canoeing their way across the waterways, at which point they start seeing more mutations and variations of life, like these neat little translucent eels or cancerous flowers or flowering cancers growing along trees. There's a fungal quality to a lot of those growths that um, I, I guess I personally have a weird phobia about funguses, <laughs> um, which made this delightful for me. I mean, we've all played The Last of Us. We've all watched that Super Mario Brothers movie. they the fear of fungus is entirely natural. <laughs> well, well founded. Yeah, and it's during this canoe, this uh, little boat ride, where Cass and Lena are in the same canoe, and Cass kind of brings up the idea that oh, pretty much everybody on this journey is kind of fucked up in some way, for lack of a better term. Cass notes that uh, Anya is a recovering alcoholic. Josie is depressed and she has resorted to self-harm through cutting in the past and that she herself has lost a daughter to uh, cancer and that she acknowledges like, yeah, like my daughter died, but in a way who I used to be died as well. And now I'm like this different person traveling along this waterway in a different part of the world. And that's where they really start to touch on the themes of self-destruction that are very prevalent throughout this movie. Right. And, and at that point, Cass phrases it very specifically as suicide. Um, and then later when Ventress and Lena are continuing that conversation, Ventress is the one who clarifies. Uh, very rarely do people fully commit suicide, but we all engage in self-destruction at some level. Um, and the, the thematic of that um, is, is tied in with cancer as well. Yes. Uh, and at this point, we don't really know what Ventress's deal is, but we've been getting hints at one of the reasons of what drove Lena to come out into Area X, and that is we see through flashbacks that she has cheated on Kane before with uh, Daniel, a professor she works with at Johns Hopkins, who's played by David Giassi, another one of my favorite semi-obscure English actors who's previously been <laughs> in uh, Cloud Atlas, the Wachowski sisters movie, and uh, Interstellar. Oh, yeah. 
so they're able to reach the old Southern Reach facility, uh, like this old abandoned bunker complex, which is being completely overgrown, not just by the flora, but by the weird flowering fungal cancer stuff everywhere. And there's one good close-up shot where you can see that just this little flowering bodies, these little spores are starting to twitch and move around. And they go into the old mess hall. They're able to find like an old roster from the previous expedition of basically watch shifts. Like you're going to stay up and stand guard for this amount of time. And then you're going to take over by somebody else. And Lena sa- sees Kane's name on one of them, though she restrains from saying, oh yeah, that's totally my husband. She's still keeping that kind of mum. And that's when a Ventress finds an SD card marked for those that follow. Josie has a video camera. They pop in the SD card. Cameron, would you like to have the honor of describing what you see? No, almost. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's at that point you sort of, we've been lulled into this, this sort of uneasy beautiness. There's been a few sort of jump scares and, and some violence, but it's, everything is so gorgeous and what we're treated to is this incredibly dingy, dark, handheld shot of formerly soldiers, but people who are clearly not in any sense of the term um, in a good state of mind. Nope. Um, one of them is tied to a chair, and he seems to be at least partially willing to be in that chair. While we see Kane, Oscar Isaac... You know, and, and this seems to be very sort of critically profound and important for all of them that they film this. It's, they're like reverent. There is something almost mystical about it, and that's—I mean—that's something that I I love about the entire movie is that 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 percolates at every every element of it. There's something sort of uh, profound at the edge of your perception that you can't quite put your finger on, and they seem to be right in the middle of that profundity. Um, and he takes out a knife and he points to the fact that this guy in the chair's belly is squirming. Um, and he very slowly and graphically opens his gut. And inside, what look like intestines at first are clearly moving of their own free will. Like eels. Yes, yeah. And then he he washes his hand and he washes his knife and and it continues that horrifying reverent quality yeah almost like i don't know like a priest washing his hands and beneath it all is like this female choral music that reminds me of some of the music you hear in 2001 a space odyssey yeah yeah i I forget the composer's name but yeah the the hungarian i believe georgi legeti there you go um yeah that's exactly what it reminded me of as well um we we can probably save a discussion of the music of the movie until Let's do the that. end, um, but I could probably do a whole podcast about that as well. Oh my god, yeah. But yeah, they're all very freaked out by the contents of that video, and after the fact, uh, Ventress remarks to Lena, at first I was thinking you probably should have told them that Kane was your husband. After seeing that, that was probably a good idea you didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is where we start to see Anya begin to panic, this idea that either they killed themselves or something killed them. And she has seen two hardy evidence for both of those hypotheses. So this is the beginning of seeing Anya start to become unwound and paranoid. Right. Right after that, they um, immediately after discovering the, the film, they discover that it was shot in an empty pool right near where they're staying. Um, 
And at the bottom of the empty pool, um, to prove that it's the same scene, um, the knife is still in the water and there is a chair where the chair was in the film, but there is now a sort of, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful and horrifying things in the entire movie. It's just this explosion of fungus in every direction uh, rooted inside of which is recognizably the upper and lower half of that same soldier when he's just sort of flowered from the cut in his stomach. Like the term I wrote down in my notes is man mural. Yeah. It's, it's almost two dimensional. It's spread out flat across this. I mean, it's, it is one of the most singularly memorable images I think I've seen in a movie. And it quite understandably horrifies everybody who's viewing it. Um, and then they all decide to stay, sleep outside, I believe, at that point. I, I can get behind that. And, yeah, just yeah. Like, and horrifying people non-diegetically as well, because with, between this scene and the first videotape scene, like myself, the two ladies I saw this movie with, everyone in the theater was visibly and audibly squirming at this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It is uh, unflinching. Yeah. So yeah, they start taking shifts and they bed down in the old fire watch tower. And it's kind of funny seeing that fire watch tower and it being paired with some folksy guitar music. Cause I was having nice little flashbacks <laughs> to the game fire watch. Getting back to a the simpler point. time. Yeah. Getting back to the point uh, Fentress and Lena have this discussion about, you know, self-destruction versus suicide. And the idea that subconsciously, maybe even consciously, we engage in behavior that is unhealthy, that undermines the stability and happiness of our lives to maybe to engage in short-term gratification, maybe because we just don't like the stability and how it's touching on basically what every character that's entered the shimmer is going through. And at that point, we hear a rustling at the edge of the perimeter fence. Cass, who's kind of jumpy, she comes down to investigate. And as the, the three of them are peering through night vision binoculars, something leaps out and grabs Cass by the neck and drags her away screaming. And, yeah. and, and like the ritual, we don't see a, a single hint of its shape, only its size. Yes. We just know it's big and it's furry and that only Lena and Ventress had a clear view of it. Like... Uh, Anya and Josie come running out, but it's too dark and they're too far away to see what it is, which factors into something later. I'll get to that then. Uh, but there's nothing to be done for Cass. It's the middle of the night. Like, she's too far away, screaming. So they decide they need to move on the next day. And move on they do. Though at a point, Lena decides like they need to do right by Cass in some way. They need to look for her. So she takes off her gear and she... Steps off the trail for a little ways. Somebody across like these two deer. That it's neat. It's initially just one deer with like literal flowers growing out of its antlers, and then another deer steps out seemingly from behind it, and the two of them gallop gallivant away like with completely synchronized matching movements. Yeah, and they had, the idea of echoes uh, had previously been brought up, um, and that's sort of another visual uh, sort of part of the puzzle that gets repeated is there are strange details that sort of ripple across the film um, that, you know, seemingly aren't, your eye isn't drawn to it, but, you know, certain characters have the same tattoo that is there sometimes and there not other times, but yeah, that's like the most uh, visual sort of idea of an echo is these these two almost, they're not identical, they are they are different in texture and color, but 
once they pair up, their motions are perfectly identical. It's almost like a cell has divided in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And after that, frankly, beautiful sight, we're treated to something much less beautiful, which is Cass's body. She's bloodied. She's torn apart at the throat. And Lena says her silent dues to Cass, and she goes back to the trail, says, yeah, she's dead. We need to move on. And they come across a village, like this old, abandoned, rural village that's been completely overtaken by the flora, and then a different kind of flora, something like trees, like shrubs that have grown up out of the ground in the shape of humans, like with the silhouette of people in mid-stride. Yeah. And that's where Josie, the physicist, she's kind of looking between them and the tree people, and she pulls out the radio. And previously, she didn't think that any signal was getting out of the shimmer, and she realizes that the signal isn't blocked, the radio signal's being scrambled. And she hypothesizes that what the shimmer is doing is acting like a giant prism in refracting, remixing, you know, chopping and screwing everything inside of it. Everything from electromagnetic signals like radio to biological signals. So that's why you have a shark crossbred with an alligator. That's why you have these eel people and flower people. Like she specifically says, I bet you if we took a sample of these shrubs, they would have Hox genes, which are specific genes that basically tell the body of a vertebrate animal how to be assembled. Yeah, it's like the dictating the sort of the, the layout plan. Yeah, the body plan. And that's when she kind of hits the nail on the head. It's like, this is happening to all of us as we're standing here. The shimmer is refracting us biologically, mixing and matching us. Like it is already starting. And there's been a lot of visual clues um, throughout the entire movie of that that notion of refracting. Um, Something that I I was thinking back on when we see Oscar Isaac's hands through the glass of water, it's, you know, refracted. There's a lot of that visually before we start talking about it as a concept, but yeah, it's it's a sort of a very singular visual metaphor. Well, like how all light shining into the shimmer has like a rainbow tinge to it because it's being refracted. Right. And so they decide like we need a safe place to stay. We should bed down in like a house. They find a house. Cameron, what's interesting about this house? Um, yeah, back on that idea of echoes. Um, it's I, What I thought was neat is that I noticed this during the movie and I thought, well, that was a very subtle detail. But I think just about everybody else who I saw the movie with noticed it as well. No attention is brought to it, but the, the layout of the house is exactly Lena's house with Oscar Isaac back uh, seemingly obviously far away from Area X. But she has a very brief moment where she just sort of tilts her head and you realize that she realizes that it's an echo of her house as well. And no more mention is meant. Yeah. It's made of it. They're even using the same shot setups as earlier in the film. And that kind of taps into an idea I have that it's more than just scrambling electromagnetic symbols. It's more than just scrambling genetic symbols, that there's something mental, like mimetic about what it's doing. And that like taps an idea that like maybe the shimmer is trying to communicate in some way. Well, I should probably save that to the end. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, for me, like at, at that point, I realized that the the ambiguity of what we were seeing was was sort of it, it had gone beyond objective. We were it was sort of a subjective landscape at that point. So they bed down again, but in the middle of the night, Lena is awoken by Anya, who holds a gun on her, strikes her in the face, knocks her out again. And the three of them, Lena, 
Ventress and Josie wake up tied to chairs in the, the mirror version of Lena's living room with Anya holding them at knife point. And Anya has clearly lost it. This once very chipper woman is like now paranoid, pacing around. She's found Lena's locket, which contains a picture of Kane, who Anya recognizes from the tape they watched. And so she's like, okay, you're lying to us. You were the only one of us who saw the thing, the bear that took Cass. So now we don't trust you about what you said happened to Cass. You're the only one who's able to identify your body. And we see Anya unraveling. Yeah, I mean, that's not a terribly irrational jump, though, that her hiding Kane's identity is is a understandable spark for that. Mm -hmm. And we've also gotten hints of her breakdown prior, but they've been very subtle and economic. Um, There's that one really awful shot of her looking at her hands, and it seems like all the lines are vanishing and becoming less distinct. And it's clearly upsetting her quite a great deal. But yeah, her, her, her jump into paranoia doesn't seem too unreasonable. And so she's like, okay, so one of two things is happening. Either something killed the old team or they killed each other. And she starts freaking out the idea of like that she is changing physically, mentally already. And she's like, if, if you cut me open, are my insides going to move around? But you're not going to cut me open. I'm the one with the knife. She moves towards Lena to cut her open when suddenly we hear Cass screaming. Yes. <laughs> Anya's like, cast, cast. She grabs her rifle. She runs outside. We hear just a whomp. And then a bear walks into the room. I, I think calling it a bear at this point would be charitable. Um, it, you know, it almost looks like the head is skinless. You can see inside to the bones and the inner workings. Um, it's not a healthy bear by any stretch. Um, and it continues screaming in Cass's voice. This walking contradiction and to see this thing, to see and hear this thing on screen is deeply unsettling. A lot of people called it the scariest moment in the movie. I personally didn't find it that way, but I could definitely see why that set people off because it's just yeah, yeah. horrid to hear these pained, agonizing, fearful sounds come from this thing. Also, if you look very closely at its weird exposed bear skull, at the very edge of it, you see the hints of a fused human skull as well. I saw that from a screenshot. Oh, boy. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to rewatching this movie. <laughs> so, you know, it sniffs around because it doesn't, it doesn't even sniff. It doesn't really have a nose. It's just listening very closely because it can't smell or hear anything. Though it goes to bite in on Josie's shoulder, at which point Anya rushes back in and starts firing at the thing. It charges her. She struggles it for a bit before it horribly rips her jaw off and kills her. It's very yeah. fast, but very gruesome. And she comes, it comes back in the room, the cast bear, to attack Lena. But Josie's able to break through her bonds and just empties an entire magazine of her assault rifle into its head, killing it for good. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an incredibly well-staged sequence as well, um, because the three protagonists are uh, tied up. Um, there's just a very claustrophobic setting and just a very the the it's it's incredibly it's the tensest uh, scene in the movie for me not maybe not the scariest but um it's just expertly paced and this the cgi on this bear thing is incredible too like it's despite the fact that it's not trying to look 100 like a real bear it actually looks more realistic than the one in the revenant uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it, it's there's they don't have to worry about the uncanny valley with a mutant skull bear um but it's i 
at that point, I don't think, I, I think during this movie, this is a good point. I think I thought less about special effects than I do during most movies by a great deal. Because mm-hmm. you mentioned that it was computer animated and I thought, oh, that wasn't a, a real mutant bear? No, right, <laughs> of course not. Movie man. <laughs> yeah, so they're now down to three. Ventress says, look, like we are changing every second we are in here. If I'm going to find out what is at the center of this shimmer, like I need to keep going forward. There's no more waiting for me. You two don't have to follow along at all. Uh, I'm going forward. And Lena has also confirmed the night before that her own blood is changing in that refracted manner. So everybody's sort of aware of the issue at this point. Yeah. And through the flash forward to the interrogation with Lomax, we learn as the audience that Ventress had cancer and was hiding it from everybody. So her drive to reach the center of the shimmer is a very personal one for her to come to terms with what it is eating away at her body, to find a cure, to find some understanding. But we can see why she would go on what is effectively a suicide mission because she doesn't have much hope on her end. And we cut to this, frankly, a very dark and sad, but very beautiful scene at the movie of Josie outside. She's taken off her jacket, and the first time we see her forearms exposed, and they're covered in multiple razor scars from, you know, her depressed past. And she says, you know, Ventress wants to face the shimmer. You want to fight it? I'm just kind of more willing to accept this thing. And it takes Lena a bit to clue into what Josie's doing, but Josie just stands up, puts on her glasses, and she starts walking away. And we see that Sprouts have started to appear from the scars on her forearms and more and more flowering bodies appear on her arms, on the back of her neck, almost between shots as she walks away into the forest. And Lena realizes too late what Josie's doing, that she's just submitting to the shimmer. And she chases after her through some brush and comes out the other side. And we don't see exactly what happens to Josie. We just yeah, see there's, you would expect a sort of distinct shot of the new uh, human-shaped tree wearing a piece of Josie's clothing, but instead there's just a large group of these human-shaped trees, and Lena just accepts it as well and and moves on. There's a real dreamlike quality um, to the entire movie, but it, it, it increases as they get closer and closer to the to the lighthouse. Um, but the the logic of this is is sort of purely dream logic. I'm glad you remembered the the sort of um, the diametric opposition that that Josie had framed um, Ventress and Lena as, as two parts of. Um, Cause I really liked that the, the Tess felt like she found a sort of measure of, uh, or, or excuse me, Josie felt like she found a measure of sort of happiness. And it's, it is a peaceful end for her. It's a peaceful, it's, it's kind of a weird peaceful because it is effectively like her committing suicide in a way, but you know, this is a work of horror. I don't expect its characters to have very healthy, positive endings. So it's kind of consistent with the genre. Uh, And it's like a darkly beautiful scene. And so Lena is spent. She's reflecting on how she believes that Cain knew about her infidelity before he left. And the idea that maybe his knowledge of infidelity is what drove him on a self-destructive path to go on a mission of which there is a very unlikely chance of return, you know, causes her to break down but she's able to retain some resolve and she reaches the beach with the lighthouse. And at this point, it's you and I having like recapping the movie while providing little interpretations in between. 
But as soon as she reaches the beach in the lighthouse, we're getting to a point where we are describing literal events that happen, but we could be completely differing on those interpretations of said events because it just becomes very abstract at this point. Yeah. The, the end of 2001 feels like um, a, an apt comparison in the sense of uh, an ambiguous and almost wholly subjective series of images. Um, you know, surrounding the lighthouse are these uh, crystal trees that look almost like neurons as much as trees, but they seem to be made out of some crystal. Yeah, like quartz. Yeah, there is maybe one of the most unsettling images in the entire movie oh. for me, simply because it's um, it's no no attention or discussion is made of it. As she approaches the lighthouse, there is there are several bodies embedded in the sand in this almost ritual like manner, where just the torsos and the and the pelvises are sticking up in a line, or you know just the heads or a row of arms sketching out some sort of glyph. Um, just no discussion of it. It just is a thing that is there and it's sort of stuck like a bit of sand in the, my head for the next couple of weeks. It was one of the most unsettling things. It's vaguely artistic. And the thing about art, it's like kind of a form of communication, which kind of ties to my theory that the shimmer is trying to communicate or express itself in some way. Yeah. Basically, at this point, any one of the single scenes that follow on its own would probably be my favorite scene in any other given movie. But Annihilation <laughs> just strings these amazing scenes, like three or four of them, like one behind another into this larger climactic sequence. And okay. And I, I should say that I think for you and me, uh, every one of these beats worked. Yeah. Um, and I've talked to people who variously a single beat in this ending didn't work for them or multiple beats didn't work for them. So I, I think our perspective is um, uh, very much a target market. For this film, um, and it's but it is it is I don't want to say challenging to assume like that we're awesome because we get it, but it is um, it is not easy. It's not handing you anything at yeah. this point. So maybe we should take a second and talk about something you and I have talked about before, but the concept of wonder terror. Yeah, that, I think that that comes up a lot in in that marriage of of sci-fi and horror is those things that are both beautiful and frightening at the same time. Um, I think this may be, you know, if I just trying to describe our concept of wonder terror prior to this, I would have used other movies, but I don't think I will ever use anything but annihilation to sort of point to and say that, I mean, it's that it's, it's something beautiful and awe-inspiring and also fundamentally wrong and horrifying. Yeah. It's like, this exact straddling of emotions where you're too in awe and inspired to be like white blooded scared, but you're too scared to kind of take in like the beauty of what you're seeing. It's this contradiction of sorts. It seems like that's like a root of cosmic horror, especially it's, it is the unknowableness of the universe. And the fact that something is unknowable and beautiful beyond our understanding is even frightening in its own 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 regards that we might not fully grasp it. Yeah, like the Urtext example of that is like the Stargate sequence at the end of 2001. But I can think of an even more recent example is you talking about the Jotun and the ritual and how you're talking about an almost reverent tones of this thing. Yeah, and and, and then, yeah, there's, there's the religious element, or at least maybe in the case of Annihilation, um, the sort of spiritual element, I think, is is something that feels sort of inherent uh, in Wonder Tear. And I, I do feel like there is coursing through Annihilation a sort of 
a mysticism that is never fully expressed. Um, and I can see that being sort of deeply frustrating and feeling pretentious to people. But, and I mean, even to me, maybe if I saw it on a Thursday instead of a Wednesday, I would have felt different, <laughs> but it, it landed so wholly to me. The last time a movie landed like that um, on a, on an almost mystical level was the, the fountain, which I also, I think this movie shares a, a great deal. And I think when we get to the end, um, I'd like to talk about the bridge between those two movies, but similarly sort of mystical, but yet dealing in the ideas of death and destruction. So Lena steps inside the lighthouse and, you know, it's, it's a lighthouse, like kind of just a tower, fairly barren, uh, but it's being overcome with this kind of white, almost concrete-like fungus leading into this almost organic hole like that goes into a tunnel deep below. But before that is a video camera on a tripod and a burnt-to-a-crisp corpse crouched against the wall. Is That video camera's working. It's got an SD card in it. And we watched the second of two videotapes in this movie. It's Kane. He steps in front of the camera in his full military gear, sits down, and he starts talking about like how he's just coming apart. He can't keep track of his body anymore. He can't keep track of his mind. His identity, yeah. Like everything about him has fundamentally changed. And he just... He can't live with not being the person he knew himself to be. At least that's my takeaway from it. And then he says, do you know what white phosphorus does to a person? And me, having played the video game Spec Ops the Line in the theater, <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I know exactly what white, white phosphorus does to people. And he pulls the pin on a grenade. He says, you better close your eyes. And he just burns up like one of those Buddhist monks protesting the war in Vietnam. And then stepping in front of the camera, you know, looking at this burning body, is Kane. At which point you have to wonder, wait, is the Kane that came back to Lena, the real Kane, is it a duplicate of sorts? It's never explicitly stated, but that spanner has been thrown into the works. For, for me, it's the hairstyle. It's the, the hairstyle of Doppelganger Kang is nearly identical to the hairstyle of the cane that appears at her door, yes, yeah, which back. is unlike the hairstyle of uh, all of other Oscar Isaac's flashbacks. So yes, my knowledge of Oscar Isaac's hair was my key there. <laughs> it's not lovingly tussled like in The Force Awakens. Yes, uh, but it is still lustrous. <laughs> uh, you know, we're laughing about this, but obviously Lena's horrifying by the implication that her husband actually did die, and at his own hand, no less. She ventures down into the tunnel has been boiled by something that crashed into the lighthouse, that thing we saw from the beginning, the falling object. And down below is Ventress. Ventress has seen some shit. And, and, and when we first see her, we see her without eyes for about a half a frame. Oh, it's like um, her sockets have been completely smoothed over by flesh almost. Yeah. Another detail that is uh, undiscussed, but sort of uh, made me question a lot of the what exactly was happening to who, when moments. Like she, she chats with Lena for a bit, but it's chatting in the most cryptic way. Like the way she like talks about their previous conversations is like, wait, have you just been down here a day Ventress? Or have you been down here like a century or something? Because you seem a bit out of time and place, but this might be it. This might be my favorite moment in the movie where a kind of peace comes over to Ventress and she says, it's not like us. It's unlike us. I don't know what it wants 
or if it wants, but it will grow until it compasses everything. Our bodies and our minds will be fragmented into their smallest parts until not one part remains. Annihilation. And at this point, this glow rises her chest as she screams and vomits forth like the universe, life, creation, mutation. It's very difficult to describe this force, this energy just pouring out of Ventress as she's reduced to glowing embers and withers away. But what we're left with is this nebulous polygonal Mandelbrot fractal set, like this constantly mutating core of the shimmer. And there's this sound that I don't know if is in the music or in the movie, but it's um, it's as alien as the image that we're seeing. You know, despite the horror that she's just witnessed, Lena is in awe of this core of the shimmer. Uh, and it draws, like, through gravity almost, sucks a bead of her blood into it. And then through very fast mitosis, we see this blood cell, this mutated blood cell, divide and divide and divide and divide until a humanoid appears before Lena. This, I'm almost reminded of- Metallic, maybe? Like, very much in the vein of what the T-1000 looked like in Terminator 2, but a bit more vibrant and colorful, and maybe a little more advanced CG. Yeah, I mean, if if that T-1000 is is mercury, this is some sort of metal that's been just dug up from the earth. There's, you know, texture to it, and- not a whole lot of shine, but it is, you know, very clearly not a, a living thing in the way that we think of living things. It's something very, very different. Yeah. Lena freaks the fuck out. She empties an entire magazine into it, but it weirdly kind of catches the bullets in their trails in this kind of weird, almost like a butterfly's wings. It, it seems to shrug These it big off. curling fibers, yeah. Yeah. She runs up the tunnel back into the lighthouse chamber, but it's already kind of teleported up there. She goes to attack it with the camera tripod. She gets knocked the hell out. But the humanoid, her duplicate, doesn't really attack her. Instead, it starts to mimic and mirror Lena's movements in what I have to describe as like a kind of interpretive dance sequence. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's, it, is a, it is a modern dance routine, and it's, um, it's gorgeous. And this is another one of those things that I... People who I've talked to who love the movie up till this point, this completely tore them out of it because it didn't work for them. But boy, howdy, did it land for me. It is it is another sort of one of the most mystical moments in the movie. Oh, yeah. And at this point, we hear this lit motif of the humanoid. It's just... And it just overpowers the soundtrack. Yeah, it's five notes. It almost sounds like an alien brass band. And um, I'm trying to remember who on Twitter mentioned that it may actually be a nod to the Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, yeah. Do, 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 do. I would. I don't know enough music theory to like transpose those and see how similar the two um, sounds are, but it is, a, it is a sort of powerful, strange drum beat throughout the scene. Oh, and at a point, like, Lena... Like, she's almost, like, crushed against the door by this thing as she tries to escape. But, like, she realizes at a point, this thing isn't trying to attack me. Like, silently realizes there's absolutely no dialogue from the point that Ventress immolates. Yeah, uh, words words would not work from that point on. 
she realizes that the thing is mirroring or copying her movements. So she gets an idea. She very slowly reaches into Kane's rucksack and grabs one remaining white phosphorus grenade, places it in the humanoid's hand. As they make skin-to-skin contact, it starts to take on Lena's appearance. And then Lena pulls the pin on the grenade, gets the hell out of Dodge, and the grenade goes off, setting the humanoid on fire, destroying its Lena features, but not exactly killing it or really hurting it. Instead, what it appears to do is kind of look at its flaming hands and then it starts like setting the lighthouse on fire and setting this weird alien fungus on fire around it. And then yeah. everything starts to go up. The lighthouse, it's a weird kind of hive down below the humanoid itself. And this fire spreads outward, burning down all the crystal trees. The and crystal this, trees collapsing. Yeah. Yeah, like this chain reaction of sorts. And Sorry, I just went back to that scene for about 30 seconds in my head. Um, yeah, it's 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 stunning. And I, I mean, I think the most reductive reading of it is that quite literally in mimicking her, she teaches itself destruction. But I think what I think is so wonderful about this movie is that I think I've heard five or six different interpretations. Yeah. And I don't think, I think the text has supported every interpretation I've heard and the text has not favored any one interpretation. And I, I think a lot of movies that have that level of open-endedness um, to interpretation can also sort of feel mealy-mouthed and like they're not settling on something. But I feel like I have no doubt that Alex Garland knew what he wanted to say making this and that it's not important what his interpretation was, but it's everybody has come away slightly different from it. Oh, it's it's the David Lynch method of, yeah, I do have a, a singular interpretation of this. I'm not telling you it. I am more interested to hear what you, the viewer, thinks. Yeah, I, I think that's something I've also moved away from a lot is like the idea that there's a, a puzzle to solve or um, you know a solution. I think it's a lot more beautiful that there's not, that, that everyone has a solution. Mm-hmm. And so we cut back to what is now the present, uh, of Lena in the interrogation room of Lomax. And he's like, okay, so this thing was alien after all. Uh, so do you, can you describe its form? Can you describe if it was carbon-based? Like, what was this thing's intense, intent? Do we know anything about it? Like, was it trying to harm us? And Lena's like, I'm not sure it had an intent. I'm not sure if it was trying to harm us. Like, all we know is it was just changing things. Maybe not for the worse, maybe not for the better. Like, Maybe it has a motivation we can't understand. Maybe it doesn't have a motivation at all. And it's yeah, it's almost like it's trying to teach the audience a lesson at this moment. Like It's more about what you take away from this movie than a singular authorial message. Yeah. Yeah. And Lena is reunited with Kane, who has recovered in the aftermath of the Shimmer's destruction, or quote-unquote Kane. She asks him are you Kane? He's like, I'm not sure. Are you Lena? And she doesn't answer them. The two just embrace in that hospital room and it cuts between close-ups on their faces and both of their irises and their eyes are shimmering and the movie just ends. Yeah. Which I mean, I, I've heard described as a sort of twist ending, but it felt, it didn't feel like a twist to me. It felt like exactly what everything in the movie had been leading up to. Yeah. Um, whether or not, I mean, I, we have to accept that at the end, Lena is greatly changed by her journey. And I think that's something that they, they nicely theme throughout the entire thing. You know, it's the idea that you can't step in the same river twice. Every journey 
changes you. So we know she's changed pretty profoundly by the end, which makes you realize that her story of what happens in the lighthouse is deeply suspect. Yeah. Um, which I think is, is, is what makes that, that last ambiguous sequence or one of the things that makes it so infinitely interpretable is maybe that's only what this combination of the shimmer and Lena want you to think happened or any number of things. Um, do you want to, do you want to talk about interpretations? Um, cause I, I, I think you and I have different interpretations of the ending. Yeah. You said you were saying stuff about the fountain. So I want you to go first. Yeah. So, so I think the fountain is another movie that another movie like this, that deeply affected me in a way that for probably the first week or so after I saw it, I couldn't articulate why Um, the fountain, especially feels like a lot of those details were pulled from very specific interests that I had, especially at that time. Um, I sort of felt this very strong connection to it, but I think one of the critical things, messages in the fountain, I think is echoed a lot in annihilation. And I think it is, the fountain is about the search for literal immortality. And the revelation is that uh, immortality is not something achieved by individuals or souls. Uh, immortality is the continuation of life. Um, that is, you know, and, and it very, it uses the, the visual idea of the fountain of youth, of someone drinking from it, assuming he's going to become immortal and dying as he is, pierced through with plants and becomes food for new life. And I feel like there's a very strong echo of that in Annihilation, which is this idea that, you know, we're all searching for these, for meaning, and it's always this personal thing and these personal connections. But what's happening in that movie is beyond an individual. It's, it is, it is the story of biomes in conflict. You know, it's this alien biome that is not just that one alien thing that we saw it is the entirety of the shimmer and it is the entirety of earth life um that these are these much longer and much grander stories are the stories of generations upon generations and mutations over time um and i think there's a lot of that there's a lot of uh, especially in american culture of not wanting to look at death as natural and i think one of the things that percolates through both the fountain and this strongly is um, a, a semi-radical idea, which is that death and mutation and change are absolutely natural. And if anything, they're the most natural things. And I would say the text would back up that interpretation readily and consistently. Yeah. 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 Uh, Especially, I mean, the book as well. But yeah, I, I think, yeah. So for, for me, um, I had a friend who saw it who said, it doesn't make any sense to me that the alien would allow itself to be blown up. Um, and I, I didn't know how to answer him at that time because what I wanted to say is I don't think it matters and I'm not even sure that's what we saw. And again, I think it's part of that. If you're looking for a very clear solution, um, the movie is going to baffle you and undermine you. You know, just thinking about my own interpretation of it, I'm going to get pretty personal for a couple of minutes here. Uh, basically for about five years, like some roughly 2011 to 2016, I was kind of an absolute mess, like this depressive, anxious train wreck who didn't really advance anywhere, like in terms of emotional maturity or like professional responsibilities or anything like that, because I was engaged in like self-destructive behavior where I wasn't treating like my anxiety and depression in a constructive manner, basically just kind of engaging in short-term 
gratifying behaviors that would, in terms of spending and eating, that would actually kind of prolong my unhealthy lifestyle in the long term rather than finding constructive solutions to it. I just remembered like after going through a breakdown towards the end of 2016, you know, started climbing my way back up and the winter of 2017. So say January, February, oh, I remember standing at a bus stop in the middle of a snowstorm and just kind of thinking like, okay, what changes do I actually need to make in my life to get out of this place and become like a more like healthy, responsible, mature member of society? And I just remember thinking like all these little things I have to do, all these little, the work I have to put in to get myself like healthy, like physically and mentally to get like a good schedule going to apply myself. Like it was kind of scary to comprehend because if I was going to undertake all these little jobs, like I would be very much changing as a person and risk becoming someone that I couldn't recognize as my current self. The idea that if I did want to engage in these healthier behaviors, I would be leaving behind who I was at that moment. And that kind of ties into the idea of like the Lena we see at the end of the movie could very well be the original Lena. It's probably not the duplicate she encountered, but we see her iris and her eyes shimmering and she is not the same person who she was when she set out. You know, I think that in a way by confronting the duplicate, she was able to, she was able to confront what Carl Jung termed like her shadow self that subconscious part of herself she didn't want to desire. She was able to kind of cathartically deal with it. And maybe she's like in a healthier state from there, but she's not the same person who she was in the beginning. I have a psychology degree. I typically uh, approach art and entertainment from that angle. Like another thing I'm going to touch on, uh, I loved Tessa Thompson's character, Josie, a lot. Specifically, it's like she was a depressed person, but also like she was a self-harmer. If I'm going to get real fucking real for a second, I have been a self-harmer in the past. Thankfully, not in terms of like cutting myself, but I was a very, I engaged in a lot of hitting, like pummeling myself in the head, like punches and slaps to kind of punish myself for like not behaving in a good or healthy way. But really what I was getting out of it was the temporary dopamine release, much like cutters do. And so it was kind of very validating to see that front and center on screen, like this character who was self-harming and dealing with it in that way. And, you know, she doesn't have a positive ending in that movie, uh, but it was kind of validating to see that character on screen. And actually, uh, sorry, uh, I, will no. be, I will be including in the... <laughs> <laughs> I will be including in the show notes a, links to, a link to this essay on Vulture by uh, Angelica Jade Bastien called uh, How Annihilation Nails the Complex Reality of Depression. Because yeah, it's a gorgeous essay. Yeah, she's talking about that length and why Josie's character resonated with her and kind of fitting to Josie, see Angelica herself being like a black woman dealing with depression and self-harm. And I can't recommend that article enough. I'm also going to link one to by Film Crit Hulk, who used to write eloquent film criticism in all caps and third person like he was the Hulk. Now he writes it more like a normal film critic, but he did an amazing write-up of this movie. I'll also include a link to that. Yeah, yeah I, I think... Um, First of all, thank you. Um, and <laughs> like, I, it's amazing to hear these very different, um, but no less deep resonances that people have with the movie that are based on even different interpretations. It's, um, yeah, it's it's incredible to hear the way it affects different people. Yeah, like, uh, like at this moment, gun to my head, I'm not sure if I would like call this one of my favorite movies, like up there with. Alien or The Sweet Hereafter, The Blair Witch Project. 
but it's like on a list of movies that if someone wanted to understand me better as a person, how I think, what I think about, like it would be up there. It would be up there with uh, yeah. a <laughs> weird combination of movies. It's like, yeah. it's Sweet like, Hereafter was the only one that threw me to be quite well, honest. That's like, that was like my favorite movies. Like for ones that get people to watch, understand me. It's like that. It's Steven Soderbergh's adaptation of Solaris. Uh, believe it or not, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh, but that's for another day. Yeah, I, I, I will tap dance and yodel this from the hilltops. This is um, absolutely solidly in my top list of movies, probably top five. It's probably going to be um, for me, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's right next to Fountain. It's something that I am looking forward to uh, experiencing it many, many times. And I, I don't, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I almost never rewatch movies. Um, I, you know, if I, if I feel like there is something to be gained from a second viewing, I may do that, but two is usually the the most I'll ever watch, or if I'm going to watch it with someone else, but this, like the fountain, which I've probably seen five or six times is something I know that I'll return to. We want to talk a bit about how it compares to the book. Yeah. Let me, can I I'm just want to go back real quick? I think yeah, one sure. of the things that, um, I do not know why it did not occur to me how similar this movie is to Stalker, the Tarkovsky <laughs> movie, but it, it, it suddenly dawned on me that structurally the idea of these expeditions of people going into a contaminated alien zone where weird things happen is uh, very, very similar. And I thought um, the the glass, um, when we are focusing on Oscar Isaac's hands behind the glass when he first comes home, Focusing on the glass like that suddenly made me remember the ending of Stalker. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how deliberate that was. But I also know that that glass was used to sort of establish the visual language of uh, refraction. Garland himself, I don't think Garland himself said that he was uh, trying to like pay homage to Stalker. I can't remember if Vandermeer said he was doing so of his book. But this movie, the book it's based on, uh, they belong to this weird tradition of sci-fi and horror stories that's all about like this genius loci, this place that has a kind of intelligence in and of itself and that which deeply affects the people who venture into it while kind of maintaining some kind of ambiguity. Uh, so obviously there's Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker and the Strigatsky brothers' novella. It's based off of Roadside Picnic. Uh, there is the H.P. Lovecraft story, The Color Out of Space, which is not only his least racist work, but by far his best work. <laughs> <laughs> that is a uh, resounding uh, recommendation. Um, that is but saying as someone something. Who is, yeah, as someone who's literally read every single fragment that H.P. Lovecraft wrote for good or for ill, um, I would, uh, yeah, I would say that that's a, a, a fair representation of it. But also like Stephen King's The Tommyknockers. Uh, I would also say, I don't think you've played much of this, but Resident Evil 7 is like this in a way of like oh. entering into this weirdly infected landscape that has transformed everybody in it albeit for the worse definitively yeah i could see that i just i haven't I haven't played it enough to, to do that um have you read much jeff vandermeer before you read this nope uh so all the vandermeer i've read has been annihilation the first book in the southern reach trilogy authority the second book and i'm about a quarter or a third of the way through the final entry uh acceptance that is it. so i yeah annihilation is the first book by jeff vandermeer i have finished uh, and not the first I've started. And I don't know why that is, because I think he's unambiguously a, a fantastic writer. Um, but there's something about his prose in the past that I've bounced off on that, you know, it may, that it may very well, may well be a failing of me that it ended up being 
you know, too challenging or too abstract. But um, I just finished Annihilation last night. And I think Garland had described his, his adaptation process as uh, an adaptation of the memory of the book rather than the book. Um, and I think I've variously described it to people as uh, someone read the book and then played a two-year game of telephone. Um, <laughs> and then somebody got the other end of it and had a nightmare about that and then made a screenplay. Like it is, aside from the basic structure of characters venturing in um, and these sort of same archetypes, and then the idea that there is a lighthouse where uh, some sort of answers are to be found, there's not much more that's similar about these these two stories. It is a very, very different book. I think I didn't have the same numinous spiritual reaction that I did to the book no. as I did to the movie. Um, but it's it was it's very, very it's very readable um, in the sense that I read it very quickly. It's it charges along. It's only about two hundred pages. It leans far more into the weird fiction and body horror um, of its roots. It doesn't quite lean into that 2001 territory like the movie does. And there is, there's a great, I, I love the, the role that words play. Um, I think that is something that really wisely doesn't play any part in the movie adaptation, but the notion of words having power beyond themselves or as an idea is something that is deeply ingrained in the book oh. and in a really horrifying way there's a really early hint on it where they, they they've part of the book focuses on that they've found this structure um that goes underground but the main character is incapable of thinking of it as anything but a tower which feels like this sort of weird perceptual tick that she has yeah. that she's even aware of and she gets mad when other characters don't refer to it as a tower, even though she knows it's sort of irrational. But one of the characters in it at one point says, you know, I, I hope it's only six feet deep and then we can check it out. We can leave. And there's some gorgeous line about, you know, we all laughed at the joke until we we heard six feet under ghosting through her syntax. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I, I read ghosting through her syntax and I put the book down and I was mad. Um, which is what happens when I read turns of phrases that I like. Um, but it's, you know, the, the role that words play as having a sort of special portent to them is something that um, is in the book, but not the movie. And I think it's really eerie and purely a sort of literary horror. There's an element of the book that very obviously didn't make it into the movie is this passage of words that are literally written in living material on the wall of this tower. And it's like... It's basically like biblical scripture if passed through like a Google neural net of, of kind of kind. It's like, yeah, it's an infinite sentence that any part of it makes context. But yeah, oh gosh. Yeah, like where, li <laughs> where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner? I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms like, and so on and so forth. Believe it or not, uh, the third book provides some context as to why it sounds so biblical. Okay, don't. All right. I'm, I will not I'm, say any more. I will say that I'm barreling into the second yeah, book right now. I will now. say Annihilation, the book, is really good. I like it more in the context of the trilogy because the other two books are, they provide details and context for events in that first book that make me appreciate it more in hindsight. I love the fact that Garland adapted this movie standalone more as like an interpretation than an adaptation. Yeah. At some point, though, I would like to see someone adapt the full trilogy, maybe not as like a trilogy of movies, but either as a TV series or, if I can be kind of honest, an anime. I would love to see someone like Hideki Anno, the guy behind Neon Genesis Evangelion, 
cover the Southern Reach trilogy because Evangelion deals with very similar themes. Uh, that's just me. And I think I think animation could really embrace the phantasmagoria um, in a different way than than Garland's film version does. Yeah, and so I was thinking about like how this book compares, how this movie compares to the book, and maybe realize that this is a weirdly safe adaptation in the way. And I think that if you do a more literal adaptation, if you strive to be as close to the source material in terms of plot and character and thematic elements as possible, then the differences are going to stand out in sharper relief. Like much like kind of uncanny Valley, the closer you get to photorealism, the more the little differences are going to stick out and bother you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to look at that. Yeah. Whereas Garland, like he took that seed of the idea and he let that seed flower in a different way. It's a different mutation, a different variation off that theme. And what I'm like, not just dealing with different plot elements or characters, but different themes as well. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite movies ever, which is Steven Soderbergh's adaptation of Solaris from 2002, starring George Clooney, which it's not just different from the Stanislaw Mem novel in terms of plot and characters. It's talking about different themes and messages entirely. But, yeah, it is a vastly different film. <laughs> but I prefer the movie to either the, Tar- the Tarkovsky adaptation or the source material because the themes it deals with just resonate with me more because it's all about interpersonal relationships and putting those under a microscope. And yeah. so I think when it comes down to it, I like Annihilation the movie more than Annihilation the book because the themes of self-destruction it gets into, those resonate with me far more than the themes of the book. Yeah, I, I would I would agree um, strongly that I, I I preferred the the movie, but I love how different the book was because mm-hmm. now it feels like two sort of complementary um, experiences. Um, and and yeah, it's it's it is it feels deeply personal. Uh, and I always like adaptations, you know, like the movie. I think you know the movie adaptation is a a great example. Things that are wildly divergent from their source material, because I think it it always is or not always, but the best times it's going to take a very um, a personal and um, sort of uh, intimate um, uh, process to get to that adaptation point. Yeah, I think that if I was to provide an accurate analogy using films we've previously discussed, if Annihilation, the movie, is John Carpenter's The Thing, Annihilation, the novel, is Black Mountainside. It's more restrained. It's more psychology-focused. Uh, it, it's more yeah. forensic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I buy that. That's a good one. You know, and you were talking about Solaris. I, I think everyone should uh, see the Soderbergh Solaris because I think it's gorgeous. And I think it also has one of the best movie soundtracks of all time. Um, but I was just thinking about Solaris this morning because I was just thinking that nobody writes roles for Jeremy Davies anymore. Oh, it's um, a tragedy. Jeremy Davies is adept at playing a very specific character that I can only assume is Jeremy Davies. But I have <laughs> never not enjoyed a Jeremy Davies role. Um, and he's he's great in Solaris as well. He's just so twitchy and weird. I love him. And that's also the first thing I saw Viola Davis in. Yeah. Well, I was just uh, up at the Donner Party um, uh, monument today. So I was thinking about Ravenous a lot. <laughs> oh, boy. One last thing, thinking about like this variation on a the theme. Just think, comparing this movie, comparing it to the book, comparing it to some of its probable influences like Stalker and Color Out of Space, just got me thinking. It's like... Well, it's like Garland kind of took the source material and took all these influences, he kind of melded them together. It's almost like they were refracted. So mm-hmm. it's like all these stories have been put through the shimmer to create the movie that we see. And mm-hmm. on a metatextual level, that's fucking fantastic. 
I would say that even the soundtrack supports that. You have very, very different styles of soundtracks from actually two different composers um, sort of hybridizing. I think, yeah, that is a, a fractal thematic throughout the entire movie. Yes. I think it's, um, it's incredibly well executed. Yeah, so the two composers uh, who previously collaborated on Ex Machina as well are Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow. Do you know what Jeff Barrow is part of? No, I do not. He's one of the three members of Portishead. Oh. Like the 90s Brit okay. trip-hop band. Oh, no, no. I am I'm an enormous Portishead fan. I'm just having one of those uh, <laughs> moments where several neurons from different sides of my brain connect. Um, that's gorgeous. I'm going to go listen to that soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, the standout track for me being The Alien, which is the climactic track in the movie that basically covers the point from when Ventress combusts to the complete immolation of the shimmer and yeah like it's a fusion of kind of folksy guitar and female vocals and just weird unsettling drones and of course that synthesizer noise from the climax and it's on spotify i'm i'm one of those nerds who still buys cds i have been searching for the cd left and right so i'm going to get that from my ipod at some point yeah Uh, yeah i look forward to their future collaborations hopefully with Alex Garland. Uh, apparently, he's been he's expressed interest in adapting the DC Comics character Swamp Thing, which I'm all the fuck about. Uh, you know what? Give him everything, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, right now. Annihilation, Jesus! I love the hell out of this movie. I can't wait. Yeah, like like I said, probably top five. I, I if if you're hearing the sound of my voice um, and Annihilation is still playing in the theater, it is something that. I very rarely say that movies should be seen in a theater, but this definitely is one. Um, If not, still watch it because it's incredible and beautiful. And even if you hate it, then we'll have interesting things to talk about. Yeah. So just one last note, like it's theater run. It has had a very limited theatrical release, primarily in the United States and Canada. And uh, I don't think on very many screens, at least relatively speaking. What's interesting, what happened during production or like post-production rather, is that Alex Garland assembled his preferred cut of the movie and they show it to test audiences and test audiences hated it they were like this is too confusing i find the main character too unsympathetic uh and one of the producers on it is like we need to cut this we need to make some changes to make this more palatable for a wider audience and then the other producer on the movie who agreed with garland and had final cut he's like nah and so they just released the movie as is but I think Paramount kind of sabotaged their efforts. Yeah, to- that is, that is as far as I understand about the movie industry, which is nothing at all. <laughs> um, that that is that is very accurate. And I gotta say, like, uh, that's an incredible act of career bravery. Yeah, just um, kudos and- to Alex Garland and that producer for doing. It. I think it was Scott Rudin. Uh, Scott Rudin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Th- thank you guys. Yeah. Uh- but if you're outside of United States camp at the moment, you can watch that on Netflix because it basically went straight to Netflix. Yeah, and yeah. please do so right now. Yeah. So, yeah, that was Annihilation. I love the shit out of this movie. Yeah, and I'm going to include the links to those uh, two essays about it. Also, I'm going to include a link to a YouTube video, which uh, it's a video taken from a drone that someone piloted around St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge in Florida. And Jeff Vandermeer used St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge as the basis for Area X in the novels. Uh, with, oh, its weird yeah. tra- with its weird transitionary environment. And it has the lighthouse there. Uh, so it's like this oddly cr- 
creepy silent video of drone flight around what is basically the real life Area X. So I will include the link to that as well. Ooh, I know what I'm doing tonight. Yeah. So uh, thank you for coming on, Cameron, and talking about this. It's been a blast. Always my pleasure, and especially for this movie. Yeah. And I'm Daniel Link. And as always, if it gets too scary, you always have the power to press pause. Hope you have a nice one. Thank you.